Awesome. Hey, welcome to church. So glad to have you uh, in the house of God this morning. As many of you know, starting in uh, the beginning of this month, we launched three services here uh, at The Pursuit. We gather at 9 a.m., uh, we gather at 1030, uh, and we gather at noon. I want to thank you for helping me grow and build the house of God here in the Northwest. We're seeing God do really some incredible things, and you and I get the high privilege of co-laboring with God in Christ to help build the local church. One of the greatest privileges you'll ever have on this side of heaven is partnering with God in the great work of the harvest here on earth. And I think if God can do it in Snohomish, you hear me say this all the time, if he can do it in Snohomish, he can do it anywhere. So thank you for believing and standing with us and partnering uh, by faith with uh, what God desires to do uh, in this region. Many of you know uh, this week my wife and I welcomed our third son, our third boy. Uh, we're excited. Uh, we're excited uh, on that Monday. Monday. This Monday, uh, we were at uh, uh, Swedish in uh, uh, Edmonds, and uh, welcomed a healthy baby boy. And really, it's a miracle. And uh, we're still catching up on sleep. Somebody asked me if we're having any more. No, no more. Uh, we can't afford no more, and so we're done. Uh, we are. Uh, we are. We're done. Uh, I, I, some of you have asked what we're building in the back. That's actually a cry room. We got so many people having kids. Because uh, really, there ain't nothing else to do. Everything's shut down. And so, <laughs> y'all reproducing, but uh, <clears throat> like jackrabbits. Anyways, in the back there, we got a cry room. We're building that out. In the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that operational. Now, now, if you're just normal crying in the service, that room's not for you. But if you have an infant who is abnormally crying, that room is for you. And so, uh, th that's going to be set up for, uh, for moms and, 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 and dads here soon. And so... Uh, thank you for uh, helping us with all these different projects here uh, at the church. I asked my wife if we could show a picture of the baby this morning. Why don't you guys put that picture up on the screen? Here's our newborn. It's Marcus. That doctor said, he said, he'd take right after mom. I said, I think so. I just, honestly, no, if your kid come out looking like that, they're, they done overcooked. It's too much. That child came out about 48 months old. I don't know what's going on. But anyways, no, let's put the real picture up, Dottie. This is, uh, this is our baby, Marcus Paul. And so uh, we, are, uh, we are excited. Thank you for your prayers. It is a miracle, and I will get to a little bit of the miracle story uh, today as we consider our life in light of uh, Scripture. God is really doing some incredible things, and I uh, couldn't be more excited to be right here uh, in the midst of it. What I found to be true about following the Lord is that even in what looks like chaos or confusion or trials or tribulations, if God's in it, there's no place that the people of God would rather be. If God's in the furnace, put me in the furnace. If God's in the valley, put me in the valley. If he's on the mountaintop, put me in the mountaintop. Green pasture, still waters, wherever he's at, that's where we desire to be. Because we know that where he's at, his hand provides everything that we're in need of. That's what David says of the Lord. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want or I shall not be in need. Meaning this, God has already provided everything that I could ever need for life, for godliness. He's already resourced me. God has already given me the necessary ingredients for victory on this side of heaven. God has not led you this far just to desert you. He has not brought you this far just to say, just kidding. I'm all out of help. I'm all out of gifting. I'm all out of resource. God is more than enough, more than able, more than capable to accomplish every word that he's spoken 
over your life. And so let's believe that together. Let's challenge each other to believe that God is as good as Scripture says He is and He can do everything Scripture says uh, He can do. I want to begin this morning by uh, helping you notice a pattern uh, in the New Testament, a pattern uh, of uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, writing. The Apostle Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And uh, in doing so, he's mostly writing to pastors and to churches in regions. Uh, So he writes to the church in the city of Corinth, and we call that book 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He he writes to the church in the city of Philippi, and we call that the book of Philippians. He he writes to the church in Thessalonica, we call that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So the Apostle Paul, who majoritively authors the New Testament, inspired by the Spirit of God, is writing doctrine, instruction, and encouragement. And it's what we use today as believers to help us order what we call the local church. And so the Apostle Paul helps frame in Scripture in such a way that we understand how the heart and the character of God is expressed in local community. And so let me show you, uh, uh, let me show you this uh, this morning. And, 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 and I'm going to ask you, Uh, if you can see the pattern. In Romans 1 and in verse 7, Paul writes this, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God. Titus 1 and, 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 and verse 4, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God. Philemon 1 and verse 3, To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, grace and peace from God. 1 Timothy 1 and 2, Timothy's pastoring in the city of Ephesus. To Timothy, a true son of the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God. Galatians 1, 2 to 3, to the churches of Galatia, that was in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 to 3, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, grace to you and peace from God. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, to the saints who are in Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God. 1 Thessalonians 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace from God. I hope you're catching the pattern this morning. The Apostle Paul is laying down central ingredients that every community of believers needs in order to grow and in order to flourish. And it looks like this, grace, mercy, and peace from God. Grace is getting what Christ deserves. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Peace is uninterrupted harmony from God. And Paul is saying to the church, this is your inheritance as saints who have been qualified to receive abundance from the Lord. Do you know that when you put faith in Christ Jesus, God qualified you to receive the inheritance of heaven. You didn't earn it. You didn't own up to it. You didn't somehow purchase it with your great resilience or your confession of faith. No, when you put faith in Jesus, God stamped you and said, now you are qualified to receive what you will need to grow to the next level of your faith and enter into a lifelong developmental process by which at the end of your life, you look more like him and less like you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes we think about sanctification as the process by which we need grace less because we make less mistakes because we're made more holy. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Sanctification is realizing that you need grace more today than you did yesterday. It's realizing you need more mercy this week than you did last week. It, it means recognizing that you need more peace this season than last season. It's not a reduction of your dependence on God. It's an increase of your dependence on God. That's why Paul says it this way. I uh, would decrease that he would increase. That the increase of his abundance would overflow in my life. You know, when we think about being sanctified or being made righteous... We understand it theologically that when we get born again, God declares us as righteous. But you're not righteous. You're rotten. But you've legally been declared to be righteous. So if you were to die the very moment after you profess faith in Christ Jesus, you'd go to heaven. Remember the thief on the cross? He doesn't even pray the full sinner's prayer and he gets in. He just says, I want to be with you in paradise. Jesus says, close enough. But he wasn't righteous. He was rotten. When you get born again, God stamps you as righteous. But when you enter into discipleship, you become who Christ has legally declared you to be. I've been declared righteous, but I'm rotten. And sanctification is the process by which I am transformed into his image and into his likeness. But it is impossible to do unless you grow in grace, mercy, and peace. You know why it's so important for you to grow in grace? Because you won't give away what you haven't first received. You have a problem extending grace to people, I guarantee you the person you hate most is you. You have a problem extending mercy to people, I guarantee you the conflict is interior. You can't extend it to yourself. You're your own harshest critic. You beat yourself up with your interior dialogue all the time. Until I've received it, I can't give it away. So Paul's Speaking to the church, and oftentimes his letters, if you've ever read the New Testament, they are filled with a whole lot of things that look like rebuke and correction. You know what Proverbs says? The stupid hate correction. Paul's letters in the New Testament aren't like, yeah, you guys are doing great. Just keep doing whatever you're doing. It'll all work out in the end. Oftentimes it's filled with rebuke, like when he writes to the church in Corinth, and he's like, you better start thinking right, and then you better start acting right, else I'm going to come to that church, I'm going to kick you all out. And then he ends his letter by saying, and by the way, grace, mercy, and peace. <laughs> I want you to see in the Pauline literature, in the New Testament books that the Apostle Paul writes, he always bookends correction with grace, mercy, and peace, which means this. Correction and discipline might be a paragraph, but grace and mercy is your story. Hear me this morning. Part of following Jesus is submitting under his mighty hand. And by doing so, allowing his developmental work to take place in your life. And can I tell you, if development were easy, everybody would do it. But it's not and for those of you who've raised kids, had babies, all of a sudden when you read Paul's literature and you recognize that a lot of his analogies talk about spiritual growth like having a baby that's on milk and then moving them to solid food, you recognize that we are in need of more growth than we think we need. And it's more important than we've realized. And it's harder than oftentimes we conceptualize. And if growth was easy, if development was easy, if maturity was easy, everybody would do it, yet most people don't. Why? Because it's hard work. And you know how you get there? Grace, 
mercy, and peace. <laughs> and maybe the most important thing that our church could grow in in 2021 is not size, but grace, mercy, and peace. See, if this is a community where people walk in the doors and sense grace, mercy, peace, they're going to want to show up and they're going to want to stay and they're going to want to invite their friends. Why? Because they found a church that reflects the Father heart of God. Yeah, we're going to talk about tough stuff. Yeah, we're going to believe the Bible is true. Yeah, we're going to call sin, sin and call righteousness, righteousness. But I'm never going to do it without bookending it with these three things. Grace, mercy, and peace. Because you already get beat up in the world enough. You already beat up yourself. You already think all sorts of terrible things about what God must think of you. And God already factored in all the mistakes you would make and still loves you. And you're not strong enough to screw this up. God's placed his hand and his purpose on your life. And if you get one thing today, get this. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now let's make that our portion. See, I'm confident if we'll guard our hearts... God will take care of our influence. I'm confident if you guard your heart, God will take care of your family. If you guard your heart, God will take care of your business. If you guard your heart, God will take care of your money. If you'll guard your heart. And so for us as a community, in this year, a year of the Lord 2021, we're going to have a lot of challenges, some unforeseen things. We're going to have high points, low points, disappointments, expectations, things that are fulfilled, things that we're waiting on. It's going to be a year in some ways like every other year and in some ways like no other year we've ever had. But we're going to have grace, mercy, and peace, not just to survive it, but to grow in the midst of it. And if we'll protect our character, we'll protect our heart, we'll protect our mind, our emotions, our soul. We'll protect that part of us that knows and understands and hears the voice of the Father. And I'm confident that this thing will continue to grow exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. See, sometimes in church growth, they get the cart before the horse. And then you grow something, but you realize it was on a rotten foundation the whole time. All you've done is create a monster. But if we get the foundation right by continuing to preach the message of the New Testament apostolic fathers, then as this thing grows, it'll grow in a healthy way. You ever seen a garden? Maybe you've had one in your house or you've driven by and, and you see vines that are growing in all sorts of different directions. I think about the church like a vine that's growing. And I think about grace, mercy, and peace like a lattice that helps direct its growth. So that it doesn't turn into a monster, but instead grows in the direction of godliness. And in, and, and in doing so, develops and builds big people. Paul's in prison as he writes the letter of Colossians, which is where we'll spend our, our time today. Uh, Colossians is a, a, a letter to a city in Colossae. It's a hundred miles east of Ephesus. Not that you care, but it's interesting to me. Pastored by a man named Philemon. Paul writes them. The obsession of the Apostle Paul's life is the gathering of God's people. If it was good enough for him, it ought to be good enough for us. The obsession of the Apostle Paul's life was the gathering of God's people. Because when they gather, they display the brilliance and beauty of God in ways like no other gathering on earth does. Paul's obsession is the New Testament church. He's writing a letter to a pastor named Philemon in the book of 
Colossians to the city of Colossae. Philemon's a complicated figure himself. In fact, Philemon's a slave owner. And at one point, Philemon has a slave that runs away and appeals to Paul because he's being mistreated by Philemon. And Paul writes Philemon and says, you owe your salvation to me. And if you don't start treating your people right, I'm going to come after you. And so Paul's correcting people, dealing with all sorts of complicated situations and scenarios. You know, every time I think 2021 is complicated in our world, I just read scripture. And I go, we're going to be all right. We're going to make it. We're complicated, but we're not that complicated. We're messed up, but we're not that messed up. We're going to be okay. That scripture should encourage you, man. If these people can make history, I think there's hope for just the common folks like me and you. But Paul is writing this letter to a church, and it meets in a house, and he's warning them about things like creeping philosophy, moving people away from the simplicity of the gospel. He's warning them about the deceit that creeps into our faith that subtly begins to convince us that we are made righteous by our behaviors. So the Apostle Paul is going to write them and say to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Colossae, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I want you to see something. Paul, in the book of Colossians, is making this case. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He would have preeminence. Now if that's confusing for you this morning, that's okay. But Paul is making this central point. There is no God like the one that we serve. He is writing a culture that is steeped in religious pluralism. They've got gods for everything. They've got a Greco-Roman myth for everything. They've got a God of reproduction, a God of grain, a God of government, a God of war, a God of water, a God of land, a God of animals. They have gods who orchestrate everything. And Paul writes in the middle of a culture that is drunk on religious pluralism and says there is no God like the one that we serve. He's the preeminent one. He's the firstborn of all creation. He was there before we ever made another God in our image. And He is the heart's expression. Every human's been born with this need for eternity. It's been planted in their heart by God. We were created to worship something. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 is masterfully weaving this philosophical idea that this, that this need in humanity to worship something is a reflection that we have been made in the image of the uncreated God. And now Paul is revealing to the city of Colossae, to the church, to that local community, the gods that you have worshipped pale in comparison to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. I've got this bookshelf on stage this, this morning, and I want you to think about this bookshelf like you think about the priorities that are ordered in your life. and The way that you think about all of the ways that your life intersects, your, your, your family, your individual personhood, your place of work, your finances, your spiritual community, your academic pursuits, all, all the different factors that make up the complexity of who you are. And I think oftentimes we fill our bookshelves with 
a lot of things that are helpful. And I don't mean that in a, a facetious way. I, I mean it for real. A lot of self-help tools and, and, and a lot of books or ideas or programs or people or TED Talks or YouTube videos that help point us in the right direction. And we've got a lot of knowledge and we've got a lot of diversity in that knowledge and we can learn from anyone anywhere because we've got humility in our lives and we've got a whole lot of information floating around in the mainframe of our mind. And Paul is writing the church in the city of Colossae and he's saying on top of the pyramid of all of your knowledge Unless God and His preeminence sits enthroned above it all, what you'll be tempted to do is to crowd the top bookshelf with things that don't have the significance of His weight. And what I've found is that when people come to Jesus in our culture, what they try to add is a lot of supplemental things to Scripture. They try to add a lot of supplemental things to their walk with Jesus. Now, I've got Jesus, but I also got my horoscopes. Now, I've got Jesus, but I've also got those psychics I go to. Now, I've got Jesus, but, you know, I think all paths kind of lead to Him, so does it really matter? No, I've got Jesus. No, no, really, I believe in Jesus. I really like Him, but could it really ever matter? And could we really ever know? And maybe I'm right, and maybe I'm not. I've got Jesus, but I don't really need church, because what about those commands anyways? And, and, and pretty soon, we have buried the Scripture in lesser things. And we become convoluted in our faith. And Paul is writing that church in Colossae and he's shaking them. And he's saying some of those things that you've put on the shelf of your life no longer deserve preeminent positions. You've allowed worldly philosophy to move you away from the simplicity of God's truth. And if Christ was there before it was all created, and if He will stand after it's all gone away, if not one word from this book will ever pass away, then let's allow Him to have the top shelf of our life. It's not wrong for you to have other voices in your corner. It's not wrong for you to have other sources of knowledge. It's not wrong for you to have other epistemological pursuits. It's not wrong for you to have other pedagogical complexities. It's not wrong for you to have other voices in your life. But as soon as you begin to crowd the top shelf, all of a sudden you're just a sheep who has lost a love for the shepherd's voice. And so we have this Jesus and this idea and this revelation of who he is. And we allow that to sit as the highest priority, as the highest knowledge, as the highest reality, as the highest truth. And Fred, we need that more than ever. In a culture that says whatever you believe is fine, whatever I believe is fine, we all have different aspects of the truth anyways. We need the clear, convincing word of Scripture to remind us not just of who He is, but who we are in Him. Here's what I believe about Scripture. It's inspired, which means although it was written by man, it's breathed by God. It's infallible. I believe it's without error. It's inerrant, which I believe is, means it's, it's everything that God wanted it to say. And it's authoritative, which means it carries the weight to order my life. Friend, the gospel doesn't make the argument that Jesus is king. It just simply announces it. Because God doesn't need to argue with any lower created principalities and powers. When it's announced, they shake in their boots. Scripture just announces Jesus is king. The Messiah is here. The one that we've waited for has arrived. And because of that announcement and how transformational it is, we have placed this truth 
on the highest shelf of our bookcase. Friend, if you find something in Scripture that you disagree with, the issue isn't with Scripture. It's with you. You might think to yourself, well, it's easy for you to say you're a preacher and you got a Bible school and so it's easy for you to believe this stuff. No, there's still things in this book that I struggle with. Why? Because this book still confronts my sin. It still confronts my selfishness. It still confronts my humanity. It still confronts my need for affirmation. It still confronts my lack of compliments. It still confronts my insecurity. This book still does that work in my life. And sometimes we have yearned for a faith by which God only affirms the altruistic values that we, that we espouse and doesn't have anything to say about our temptation to go to the ditch, to the left or to the right. And can I tell you, when you find something in Scripture and you go, man, that stings a little. It feels like a sword is doing some work in my life. It feels like a surgeon is cutting with a scalpel on my heart. Allow the Spirit to do what He does best, to guide you into all truth. Here's my concern. Without the Spirit... We dry up. But without the Word, we blow up. But when we are anchored to the Word and flowing in the Spirit, by God's grace, we can grow up. That's my commitment in this church. I refuse to apologize for being charismatic. Don't like the way I worship? Too bad. I'm not worshiping you. This church wasn't built for you. It was built for Him. And we have invited the community to come and worship and honor and glorify Him. So I don't like the way you worship. It's all right. It wasn't for you. It's for Him. I'm going to be uncompromisingly charismatic. That's who God has created me to be. But I refuse to fall into the ditch that so many of our Pentecostal brethren have fallen into. Where all day God is the Spirit, but they don't got any of the Word. See, when you get to spirit and not the word, you prophesy out of your flesh. We've seen that a little bit. When you get to spirit without the word, it's just however weird you are, that's how God made you, but you got no maturity in your life. See, if you got to spirit and you don't got the word, then all of a sudden God's voice sounds awfully familiar to yours all the time. But when I'm anchored in the word, but flowing in the spirit, it gives me the ability to come into the fullness and the maturity that God has invited us into. And so let's be both and instead of either or. Well, is this a Bible church or a spirit church? What if, what if the message of the New Testament is that you ought to be both? You ought to believe that the Spirit of God is still giving gifts to the church. He's still causing dead men to get out of graves, lame walk, lepers cleanse, blind eyes open. What if we still believe today that the Spirit of God is still in the work of resurrection, yet at the same time hold an uncompromising conviction that every word of Scripture is true? In fact, Scripture says, let every word from God be true and let every man be a liar. Well, Pastor, what if it says something that's not politically correct? Oh, it's got a lot of those. <laughs> but listen, when I find something in my life or in my world that disagrees with this, I've got two choices that I can make. Number one, I can deconstruct my culture in light of Scripture, or I can deconstruct Scripture in light of culture. Only one leads to eternal life. It's like some people act like today, like they're so enlightened. That their enlightenment goes above the inspiration of Scripture. Like, well, if Scripture was being really written today, you know, they would have probably added these things and changed this. And they said it that way, but they really should have changed it this way. And, but who are you? This word is breathed by God Himself. 
and moved on people to write pages of Scripture in such a way that they reflect the character of God. And anywhere you cut Scripture, it bleeds the atoning blood of Christ. That's what's so beautiful about this word. And so we've got choices to make in our world. We could deconstruct this or we can deconstruct us. Now, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus everything equals nothing. What does it profit a man to gain the world yet lose his soul? Here's what I'm going to end today. Colossians 1 verse 3. I only got through the first two chapters. Or first two verses of Colossians 1. Watch what he says here in chapter 3. This is good. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says these four words. I think it's some of the most transformational words that he ever writes to the church. These four words. We always thank God. Paul's in prison, friend. Nero, the Roman emperor, about to cut off his head. And I know you're upset about people raising taxes, but Nero is about to murder Paul. He writes the church in Colossae and he says, watch the disposition of my heart. Watch the attitude of my mind. We always thank God. I don't give God thanks for everything, but I give God thanks, watch, in everything. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? That's a question I get asked more as a pastor than any other question. Pastor, what's the will of God for my life? I don't know. I'm not you. Pastor, what's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God? What's, somebody tell me. I need somebody to function as my go-between. Somebody tell me what the will of God is for my life. Now when people ask me that, I pretend I'm getting this strategic download. Hold on, I hear the angels. They're speaking. I see a scroll. It's unrolling. Hold on. It's coming. It's coming. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. I know. <laughs> I apologize. I messed up today. I'll tell you that much. We ain't sleeping. You know, that's the problem. These kids, these dang kids, man, we ain't sleeping. You know what I mean? They shouldn't even let me preach this morning. We ain't sleeping. Now watch. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God. Pastor, what's the will of God for my life? In everything give thanks. Hey, 2021 is going to be a really great year for you to exercise this discipline. In everything, give thanks. It doesn't mean I'm thankful for everything. It means I give thanks in everything. Now watch, let me go to my whiteboard. Let me watch. Watch. I think so often, and I think even we've done this, Lighty, you know, and sometimes we obsess over what the will of God is for our lives. Like, unless I find that secret thing, that secret job, that one relationship, that soulmate, unless I find that one thing that God has for me, I'm going to live my whole life unfulfilled. What if this morning you could change the way that you think about God's will for your life? What if God's will for your life is less about finding the one thing and instead 
becoming the right thing. What if it's not about finding the secret soulmate who can put up with your crap for the rest of your life and call it marriage? What if it's about being the right person? What if it's less about what your vocation is and more about the type of person that you become as you do everything as it is unto the Lord? What if it's not some weird where's Waldo existential search for the one thing that's going to make you happy and instead living an entire life laid down to the service of King Jesus? What if the will of God is simply this? In everything, give thanks. I'm not looking for the one thing. I'm becoming the right person. And in everything, I'm going to give thanks. Let me end with this story. Uh, my, my, my wife and I had this baby. I mean, I didn't do anything. She had the baby. I was just there. But she had the baby on Monday. I'm telling you, she had the baby. I mean, I contributed. No, but, I, yeah, I did do something. But, uh, but not that first picture. I didn't do that. Yeah. That was so, Yeah, I don't know what that was. DNA test. That, that one's not mine. I don't know what that one is, but we got the cute kids. We went to seventh floor, Swedish, Edmonds Hospital. And we were in room 701, and she wheeled down to surgery, having a baby, and had some time, a couple hours, just to walk in the hallways. Passed the time until baby and mom got back up to the room. And while I was standing in the hallway, I looked over and I recognized that room 702 is right next to room 701. And the reason why that's significant, because as soon as I saw 702, the Lord gave me a flashback, a deja vu, to the last time I was on the seventh floor. We weren't in 701, we were in 702. But we weren't in 702 to welcome a baby, we were in 702 grieving our second miscarriage in a row. And I'm walking in that hallway and I find myself in this reflective moment. It was our second ectopic. They put my wife on chemotherapy for several months. The doctor came in and said, you won't ever have another child. It's going to take a miracle for you guys to get pregnant again. This ain't ever going to happen. And I remember the voice of the Lord as clear today as it was back then. In everything, give thanks. We had an opportunity in that hallway not to give thanks for the miscarriage, watch, but to give thanks in the midst of the miscarriage. And here's what the Lord spoke to me. I want to share this with you this morning. How many times does God use the hallway of your pain to function as the midwife for your miracle? I don't think I had any more faith this time than last time. I don't think I'd read more chapters in my Bible book than this time than last time. I don't think I was tithing more this time than last time. So often we reduce miracles to the performance of us. Like there must be something wrong with me. And if I had more faith and if I believed more and if I just showed up at church on time and if I just served more and if I just loved God more and if I just memorized more verses, then I got my miracle. And I want, I want to be very clear this morning, friend. God doesn't cause your pain, but if you let him, he will use your pain. And so I don't look at God as some sort of existential bad guy waiting to punish me with sickness or loss to teach me a cosmic lesson. But instead, a loving father who goes, yeah, I know that hurt, 
and I know that's a reflection of the fallen world in which you live. But if in this hallway of pain, you can learn to give thanks, then nothing can stop you. Friend, this year, you're going to have some hallway of pain moments. And I want this word to come back as a prophetic line in your ears. In everything, give thanks. What if that's the greatest testimony we have in 2021? Man, those people at Pursuit, I feel like they've had everything and the kitchen sink thrown at them. And yet nothing has stolen their grace, their mercy, their peace, their joy. Man, those are people who give thanks. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?